Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Make sure you rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. For $1 a month, you can just sleep well at night knowing that you're helping support this show. For $5 a month, you get bonus content, Patreon-only episodes. Some Patreon-only episodes you can look forward to are a debate between Ali Abunima and Matt Karp over the Harper's Letter, which Matt Karp signed, and a discussion with Ross Barkin and Jen Perelman on why Bernie lost and the takeaways for other progressive politicians. On today's show, I play an interview I did with Melba Pearson, who is running for Miami-Dade State's Attorney against Democratic incumbent Catherine Fernandez-Rundall. Among other terrible things, Fernandez-Rundall refused to prosecute the prison guards who killed Darren Rainey, a black schizophrenic man, by putting him in a shower with scalding water for at least an hour and a half. Then I play an interview I did with journalist Ross Barkin, and with Jen Perlman, who is challenging Debbie Wasserman Schultz for Congress. Please uh, tell us why you're running and what made you run. Yeah, so hey everyone, uh, my name is Melba Pearson. I'm running to be the next state attorney for Miami-Dade County, Florida. And thank you, Katie, for having me on. And uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to our chat. So, you know, a little bit about me. I was a prosecutor for 16 years in that same office. So I know what works well, I know what doesn't. And then I then became the deputy director for the ACLU of Florida. So I really got that like 30,000 foot view looking at criminal justice throughout the state and again looking at things that we can be doing differently and better so you know over the course of my work and being president of the national black prosecutors association i got to see how some really great forward-thinking programs are being applied throughout the country and it's not happening here in miami-dade county and that and unfortunately uh, my opponent in her 27 years has never filed charges against a police officer for an on-duty killing so for me there were so many missed opportunities for justice and it's really time for a new direction in Miami-Dade County and really someone who's going to be bold and fearless to make sure that justice is real and accessible for everyone no matter how much money you have in your bank account or from where you're from. Did you have an aha moment uh, where you were like oh wow this woman is not prosecuting in uh, prison guards and we'll get into this for boiling a man uh, to death uh, I maybe should challenge her. What was the, the thought process? First, I had been very involved in the aftermath of the Darren Rainey case. So once that I was already at the ACLU of Florida right. and that memo actually got released while I was there and the ACLU was one of the top critics of what was going on and, and why this case wasn't filed. So, you know, in reviewing that case and I was seeing the missed opportunities, that bothered me. Then there was right after that, the Jesus Menocal case, who was a highly, uh, a police sergeant in a city here called Hialeah, and he was sexually assaulting women and girls. And, you know, my old office chose not to believe the one victim of the five that they spoke to and never moved forward in bringing accountability for his actions. So that bothered me. And then when we had the discussion around bail reform, because we really looked at the data here in Miami-Dade County, and there were really stark racial inequalities that were laid bare by the data, by the numbers. This wasn't a opinion this was literally numbers in black and white and my opponent was like 
no, nothing to see here. Right. Uh, you know, there's other reasons. And we're never going to have bail reform in Miami-Dade County because the voters don't want it. Right. I'm like, well, let's find out. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. So just to back up a little bit, could you tell us about those cases, the Darren Rainey case and then the Hialeah sexual uh, abuse cases? Sure. So Darren Rainey was a schizophrenic African-American man who was in custody at the Dade Correctional Institute. It was it's a prison here in South Florida. He was serving a sentence for cocaine possession, right? So just as a random side note, something that I've seen many times in the criminal justice system is that when you see people with mental illness, many times they use street drugs to self-medicate because they're not getting proper access right. to medical care and they're not receiving the prescription medications that help deal with the underlying condition. So this is not That's a really problem. important point. Yeah. Yeah. So he was in custody. He had an episode and the, there were four correctional officers that took him out of his cell and placed him in a shower. Now the shower is known for its scalding hot temperatures. They were referred to it, referring to it as a punishment shower. Um, the temperature in there ranges between 160 to 180 degrees. The staff would use that shower to make ramen noodles. Like, it's not even oh like, oh, we get the water gosh. to go boil it. The water was already so hot, they could stick the jar wow. under the, the stream and their noodles would cook instantly. So oh this was gosh. a well-known uh, issue with the shower. And also being this type of prison shower, if you're inside of it, you do not have access to the control. So you can't turn the water on or off. You can't adjust the, the temperature and you can't adjust the volume of water coming. The guards left him in that shower for two hours until he died. Uh, witnesses speak about him screaming and begging to be let out and apologizing, and yet they still left him there until he passed away. The uh, graphic photos that come from the autopsy are something that, you know, once you see them, you can't unsee. It's, it's really horrible. So the medical examiner after a number of years, because this happened in 2012, right. and it was only as a result of the Miami Herald, which is our big newspaper, the Miami Herald, doing an investigative report, really following this case and itemizing what happened and starting to pose the questions of why has there never been any accountability, sometimes somewhat on behalf of the family, uh, that another autopsy, like an autopsy was done, an investigation was really, you know, went into high gear, and the medical examiner said that this was an accident because of the fact that he had medication for schizophrenia in his system, and somehow the heat of the shower could cause him to have a heart. I mean, it was just like, uh, how many different ways can we twist it to make this an accident, Yeah, right? somehow burning some, putting someone in illegally hot temperatures uh, is contraindicated uh, for for schizophrenia medication and but but for that he'd be totally fine alive and kicking right. exactly exactly contrary to common sense medicine and everything else yeah. so you know so my opponent has been saying well because of the medical examiner's report and all of this you know we couldn't go forward and in my review of the case because you know again do I have the full case file? No, but I had the medical examiner's report. I had the memo that was pretty detailed. I read some of the witness statements and I was like, we could totally file this case. It wouldn't be like a first degree or second degree murder case, but it would be like a manslaughter, something so that the officers would be held accountable. And there's a clear message being sent to the community that this 
type of behavior won't be tolerated. But my opponent refused to do so. And, you know, now we have a situation where it's been eight years and there's been no justice for the Rainey family in the criminal justice system. They did receive a civil, a civil settlement of a multi-million dollar settlement, but at the end of the day, that doesn't bring your loved one back. And, and the guards are still free to go about and do this again to someone else. And is the reason it wouldn't be first or second degree murder, is that because it wouldn't be easily, you wouldn't get a conviction with that? Or is it just technically not that? Because first degree is when you have the intent, right, to kill? It's the premeditation. Premeditated. Okay, and second degree is? Heat of passion or so incredibly reckless. Engage in activity where it was, it's a likely outcome or exactly. possibility. Took exactly. the criminal law class in undergrad. Still remember it, kind of. Right? <laughs> um, I still think, I used to always think I go to law school. I still kind of consider it, but. Um, uh, right, yeah. Uh, we have a good friend, actually, family friend, who went to law school, I think, in her 40s or 50s and, like, w- represented Leonard Peltier. Not that that turned out so well, but it's not on her. You know, you have an entire right, right. You know, institutional <laughs> bias against him. Um, so because this seems like you put someone in a shower, you hear them screaming, apologizing, begging to be let out, saying, I can't take no more. That seems reckless. I agree, but here's the problem, and this is why I would file manslaughter. Um, the medical examiner's report said that the death was accidental slash natural causes. Right. So with that finding, you know, usually yeah. when you have a murder case, they say the manner of death is homicide. They put that right. in the medical right. examiner's right. report. So it's a really kind of an uphill battle to be able to prove right. murder when the medical examiner says accident. So you take that ruling of accident, which is what a manslaughter is. Right. It's an accident. Death. And then you could actually succeed in, in exactly. that. Um, exactly. Look at my inner Matlock. Right? Or, there you or, go. Or the reverse because <laughs> of defense, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that case is, like, is so incredibly disturbing. And it starts, I mean, I, I, it starts, like you mentioned, and I, I didn't even think about this part, which, but the self-medicating because you're mentally ill. Um, there, you know, we are kind of famously in the United States bad at this issue. We're bad at funding mental health, um, bad at funding healthcare in general, um, very punitive. We use the criminal justice system for things that it should not be used for, like treating mental health. Um, he had a terrible incident. Um, it's, you know, involving not to be graphic, but involving, I guess, smearing feces on the wall and on himself. And that's, Probably an example of why, first of all, he should not have been in prison because that's not, you know, that's a very clear indication of mental illness. Um, And of course, yeah, you want to put the person in a, clean the person up. But again, the um, uh, putting that person in scalding water, that's uh, totally unjustifiable. Um, They also had a reputation, um, these in uh, prison guards, correctional officers, for using that, as you said, to punish other people. They would do something called air trays where they would give uh, people trays without food on it. Apparently they bribed one prisoner to attack another prisoner. Um, and there were, I mean, another one of the prisoners who had to clean up the shower afterwards um, said that he found like a chunk of flesh. Yeah. Um, it was just uh, so incredibly brutal. And it's, it's interesting that Fernandez Rundle didn't even feel the pressure. Forget the moral issue. I mean, I have no faith there, but the lack of, there's such blatant um, lack of accountability uh, that not just for these officers, but for her, 
that she didn't even feel the pressure to kind of do a tap on like what a uh, tap on the wrist with you know a slap any, on the wrist. Slap, thank you. Yeah, uh, a slap on the wrist. So, yeah, were, were people surprised or was that kind of expected given that she hadn't even pursued the case but and only did after there was a high profile uh, investigation, journalistic investigation. So I mean, I, I I don't think a lot of people paid that much attention at first because again, it came out. Friday afternoon, 4 p.m., nothing to see here. So there wasn't a ton of media attention at first. But Julie Brown, who was the journalist from the Miami Herald who did the series, picked up on it, and then it started to snowball. And so then what ended up happening in 2017, the Miami-Dade Democratic Party, you know, basically called her to the carpet and brought her into a general body meeting and basically confronted her on it. And as a result, they passed a resolution of no confidence against her and asked her to resign. Uh, she, of course, refused. But that has now resurfaced in the course of my race, where now they passed another resolution earlier this week saying, number one, you know, we t- asked you to step down in 2017. You did not do so. In the three years since, you have still yet to charge a police officer for an on-duty killing. And at the end of the day, we have a moral obligation to, you know, talk about these issues and promote justice for all. And we believe Black Lives Matter. So as such, we're asking you to abandon your re-election campaign, step out of the race, and, you know, basically cease and desist everything that you're doing. So in in function, they stripped the the D in front of her name. (laughs) Right. And she was a Democrat. She is a Democrat. Yes. It's another sign of how far the Democrats have fallen. I mean, the fact that this person is not a Republican... Uh, not to be too partisan about it, and my expectations are certainly not high, but wow. So you have a man who's mentally ill, thrown into to jail. Three years. Three years for cocaine. Yeah. For just possession? Just possession. Oh, my God. Okay. So and just for context, the maximum is five years. So wow. that's, a, that's a long sentence. Yes. Three years in jail. Just imagine that for having cocaine. Um, mentally ill. Um, shouldn't be there in the first place. Uh, he's uh, uh, then murdered by prison inmates or manslaughtered by prison uh, by prison guards. And then on the other hand, now, of course, marijuana is a less uh, serious drug, right? And the punishment for that is lower. But on the other hand, you have one of uh, uh, Fernandez Rundle's two foul son sons um, boarding a plane with his mother and aunt, I believe, with mm-hmm. marijuana on him. And he's not even... Uh, they almost, they let him on the plane and then someone kicks him off the plane. But he was going to be, after this was found on him, he was still let on the plane by some officials before I guess they realized maybe that was bad optics. Um, and what happened, uh, and then I don't remember if it's that son or the other one, ne'er-do-well, who um, has been, who broke into his school, uh, broke into a school, um, tried to uh, steal a car, um, was in a DUI, Uh, How have their lives fared? How have they encountered the criminal justice system? So I am not overly familiar with what the outcome was as a general premise. I don't know if a lot of people are, um, but my understanding is that they did some sort of diversion or some sort of program and, you know, kind of moved on with life and are working and, you know. Right. So they they got to have like a pre-trial diversion program. So f- interestingly enough, when it comes to Rundle's, uh, Fernandez Rundle's son, she embraces uh, or I guess supports or benefits from or her sons do a kind of more um, 
<laughs> restorative justice, uh, pretrial diversion, less punitive criminal justice system. But if you are black, uh, mentally ill, and have cocaine, you're just thrown into the slammer for three years. Um, and also have the, uh, you know, privilege of being burned to death. Uh, so, you know, this is like, we always hear about two criminal justice systems, two justice systems, and a tale of two cities. And, and it's, you know, people off, powerful people often benefit from that. They have the, you know, the, the good system, which is basically, right. they're like uh, exempt from the system and other people are, are, you know, have the full force of it. Um, apply to them. But this is kind of a stark example. Like it's not always the uh, state attorney's own sons right. who are given mm -hmm. this second level of, of justice. Um, right. right. Yeah. That's just so, I mean, can you imagine the double, the double standard is, it's not shocking. It's just shocking that it's, it's not usually that stark of a contrast. Right. Right. I mean, and at the end of the day, you know, the ACLU did a study looking at the data between 2010 and 2015 in Miami-Dade County, and they found at every single level of the criminal justice system, Black Miamians have close to three times worse outcomes than their white counterparts. And Black Hispanics have almost up to six times worse outcomes to their white counterpart. So the, the tale of two justice systems is alive and well in Miami-Dade County. And that's part of the reason why I'm running because that has to change. That's not okay. And can you talk about on a related note, um, the, the Hialeah um, uh, case? Sure. So the, uh, in the Hialeah case, there was a police sergeant by the name of Jesus Menocal Jr. Uh, he was a police sergeant and he was tasked with a number of, I believe he was on SWAT, you know, he was on a lot of uh, different uh, assignments with the department. And during his time, he was sexually assaulting women and girls. And if you actually looked and examined every single uh, detail of all of the, the five uh, people's stories, they all pretty much have the same modus operandi, right? He pulls them over in the same way. He takes them to a certain part in the police department where there's no cameras. Um, he generally assaults them in the same way. And basically, you have a situation where a couple of the, the, the people assaulted were underage girls. And they reported this, you know, obviously, and, and they were very traumatized. And of the five survivors, one of them, only one of them was interviewed by the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office. And this is the office that prides itself on being at the forefront of human trafficking and, and believing survivors and all of this. Well, when the, the one young woman came in to give her story, the prosecutor that spoke to her decided that she was a bipolar, manic-depressive, runaway gang member, and therefore not worthy of being believed. And she never bothered to speak to the other four survivors. Because if she did, it would have been clear that, listen, even if you may have doubts about the first one, you know, I didn't speak to her, so I don't know. But let's say even if you have doubts, once you hear the stories of everyone else, and they're all exactly the same, you could have filed all of them as one single document, right? As one single case. Or you file one case and then bring in these other details to help bolster that one case, right? But she chose not to do that. And by not believing her and by talking about how she exhibited, you know, these, these certain behaviors, 
Well, some of those behaviors are very consistent with human trafficking survivors. Sometimes they come off as tough. You know, people have this misconception that if you're a survivor mm. of sexual assault, you're curled up in the corner, you're weeping, you're, right. you're you know, you're, 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 you're uh, the way you react is just very like a shrunken violet. And sometimes, you know, you've got an angry, tough exterior because that's your coping mechanism, sure, right? right. And there's plenty of studies to support that. So how can you say you're at the, the forefront of human trafficking when you don't even recognize the signs and when somebody who is coming to you with the textbook symptoms of being victimized, you, you don't even know how to recognize it. And on the worst part of it all, you don't even do a thorough investigation. Right. All five of those, those women were completely let down by the system. And the U.S. Attorney's Office, the, the feds, got involved and actually have filed civil rights charges against him. So there is some potential of justice for these survivors. But this was a complete missed opportunity by the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office to do the right thing and to help these survivors. So, right, if, if she had any interest in determining what happened, uh, does she have any excuse for why she in, they interviewed one and only one of the five? Never heard anything, any explanation as to why. Makes absolutely no sense to me. I mean, it sounds like this was a uh, victim blaming and kind of like poverty shaming and like sex work shaming uh, thing. And then again, even if you say, yeah, this person would make a terrible witness, wouldn't, you know, stand up, uh, work in court, Okay, fine. Let's talk to the four other people. Exactly. Because sometimes you build a case, you know, knowing, let's say you have a serial, like this is basically a serial rapist, right. right? So when you have those types of cases, you usually file one count on one charging document, but it's like five different names on the charging right. document five different counts, right? So that would be how you best approach it. And if you're really worried and like, you know what, I really don't want to call this first victim or survivor, then what you do is you file with the other folks and then you bring her in just to kind of help give testimony, but you don't Uh, necessarily charge around her. Right, right. Right. If if the concern was that, great. But again, if you had talked to everyone, you could have filed it, but she just was not to. It was sloppy. It was sloppy. Or probably intentional, right? So that she didn't have, well, you don't know. You can't get into the men's rea. Right, right, yeah. To her, right. But, but I, I'd say as a civilian outsider, uh, non-jurist, uh, that uh, it sounds, I mean, I think it's coincidental. Uh, okay, sloppy at best. And um, uh, what's the word? <laughs> what what at worst? I said nefarious. At nefarious, worst. yeah. Or you know, yeah, exactly. Or what's it like? Just uh, protect, enabling, protecting, covering for mm-hmm. you know police uh, misconduct. Um, so no criminal charges. He hasn't faced any, and he's is that in the correct? state system. In the state federal system. system, he is. Yeah. So he is facing criminal charges, but it's civil rights charges because the feds um, have the ability to right. file charges saying that you violated someone's civil rights by your pattern. Okay, so it's a criminal case, but it's a civil right. rights case. Okay, got it. Yes, and it's in the federal system. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, so she, I mean, it's interesting because one of the things that people who are more tough on law and order, tough on crime, I mean, and don't embrace this kind of, you know, alternatives like, you know, pre-trial diversions, unless it's your son, I guess, um, or restorative justice. I mean, their, their justification, right, is that they have to be tough on crime. They ignore all the literature about recidivism um, and how, you know, incarceration does not make the world safer. Um, right. And uh, 
but you're supposed to be tough on crime, which would mean you look into a police officer's alleged sexual assault. Of, and you're also supposed to be, I mean, you know, sex crimes and murder are, 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 are things that really are, you, you claim to, one claims to be tough on. And the fact that right. she didn't even look into four of the five um, accusers is just stunning. Like she can't even do her, like she, she, her lane, she's not even fulfilling her own like alleged uh, commitment, you know? Like be, exactly. if you're gonna be punitive, why be punitive to a, a, a serial rapist, not, but I guess it's not, you know, it's not the same as a black uh, mentally ill man. So uh, with whom you have to be absolutely no justice and no mercy. So yeah, right. it's really stark. Anything else you want to make sure people know about your campaign, the case, what's happening? Yeah, so my election is on August 18th. So it's a primary election, but the, the race is going to be resolved in the primary. So it's not like it's going to roll to November in any way, shape, or form. So if you miss it August 18th, you've missed it, right? Yeah, guys, so, guys, yeah. get it together, August 18th. Yeah, August 18th, sign up to vote by mail because in Florida, our COVID numbers, I think we hit 11,000. Oh, yeah. Or something crazy so sign up to vote by mail uh, because that is safer and it allows you to be able to vote from the comfort of and the safety of your own home so definitely do that if you want to learn more about me learn more about my platform and my vision for Miami-Dade County uh, my website is www.melba for Miami.com, Melba, F-O-R, Miami.com. You can find me on all socials at Melba for Miami. And yeah, definitely donate if you can, uh, because I am a grassroots candidate. I'm not taking money from any big unions, big organizations, mm. police unions, anything like that. So this is all individual grassroots person by person, because I want to be accountable to the people, not the right. specialists. Yeah. Um, and so donate if you can. If you'd like to volunteer, we're doing virtual phone banking, which you can do anywhere in the country. So definitely go ahead and sign up and do that. And just remember, you know, at the end of the day, the more progressive prosecutors we can get elected across the country, the better it is for criminal justice reform nationally, because then there's more of us pushing forward this agenda. And it is it gives the ability to give cover to other jurisdictions as they want to be more progressive. Right, right. And we can see that national change that we've been pushing for, especially in the wake of the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others. Right. Yeah. I've actually had on Chase Boudin, the San Francisco DA, uh, Tiffany Caban, Larry Krasner. What would you do? What would your office do about police uh, accountability and reform? And do you consider yourself a decarceral um uh, do you guys not have a DA in Florida, in Miami? Is it state's attorney? With state's attorney, yeah. The same, okay, for whatever. Same okay. thing, just different yeah. title, yeah. Right, so do you consider yourself decarceral or reform-minded? Um, and would you do any kind of, uh, I don't know if it's within your purview even, any kind of reinvestment, uh, rein, reinvesting uh, out of the police and into like mental health programs or homelessness programs? Yeah, so I definitely consider myself to be reform-minded, and even though I don't have a direct impact on police budgets, I would definitely be using my platform as the largest prosecutor's office in the state of Florida and the fourth largest in the country to really draw attention to the types of programs and social services that we should be investing in as a community that gives better outcomes and that reduces the possibility of violence between the police department and the community 
communities that they serve. So I definitely believe that, you know, and I've seen it so many times over my career in Florida, where you have great programs that are doing really solid work in the community, their funding gets stripped as a result of being in a budget crunch, and that money never, ever comes back. So those programs fold, and then now we have a movement away from investment in our communities. And sadly, we're reaping the benefits with less safer communities and more violent interactions uh, between the community and law enforcement, which is which should never be the goal. Right. That's, right. that's not the point. You know. That's again, one of the things I find so stunning is let's say you're just tough on crime. You don't care about prisoners. Uh, you don't care about people who have committed a crime that maybe shouldn't even be um, a crime should be a mental health thing, for instance, like even if you just care about that, you if you look at the numbers and recidivism numbers, you get that it's not creating a safer society. You know, right. it's, it's like you can be and even you have some fiscal conservatives kind of uh, on the right with whom I disagree about many things, but even some of them get it. Uh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like libertarian types or fiscal conservative types, they just like, they don't particularly care about the people. They don't particularly care about, you know, the racism, classism, uh, and injustice of the system. They just think it's a waste of money and it also right. doesn't actually make anyone safer. So, yeah, that's like the Koch brothers all day, exactly, right? Exactly, right. Like, yeah, yeah. That's their argument, is yeah. the fiscal savings. Yeah. Um, well, this has been so great. And that again was Melba Pearson. Now I play my interview with Ross Barkin and with Jen Perlman, who is challenging Debbie Wasserman Schultz for Congress. Ross Barkin, welcome. Thank you for having me. We're yeah. excited to be here. Yeah, I've been wanting to have you on for a while. Um, it's hard to keep up with you. Like literally, you just wrote another piece, I see. Yeah. Uh, about Tucker Carlson. <laughs> do you have a piece in The Guardian? You have a piece about Tucker Carlson? You have a piece about Cuomo? Do you have a, what, do you, what do you want to talk about? Because I think our listeners oh, are that's interested a good, good in all question. of them. Yeah. I, I, for those who don't know, um, I, I, I write a column for The Guardian. Um, I also contribute to The Nation. And in May, I started a Substack because that's what a lot of people are doing now. And, and I've, I've been enjoying it because it's a way to actually be compensated for all the work you do for free, which is basically tweeting. And, you know, I'm right. a Twitter person and I, and I like Twitter, but you're, you're, you know, a lot of times I would have thoughts, but they're not really thoughts that necessarily could make it into a regular paid journalism piece that I do, um, but I wanted to expand on. And and also, you know, I, I wanted to have a medium I, that really I thought did a fair job of compensating writers. So I, I recommend Substack for those. But not medium. Know. I thought you were saying you wanted to have a medium, but you're saying. Oh, like, like, I mean, yeah. just the word, the word, yeah, the word medium, not yeah. not medium as in the, the platform. Com, right, yeah. Against medium. Yeah. Um, no. I, I never, I used it a little bit, but I, I find Substack much more intuitive. So, huh. yeah. Um, Basically, I started a Substack in May to, to focus on Andrew Cuomo and his failures to respond effectively to the coronavirus pandemic, which is something of a controversial take. Yeah. To talk about that. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about that, and then we can talk yeah. about um, Bernie. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, I've, in, in my capacity as, as, a, as a journalist you know, from New York City, um, I have written about Andrew Cuomo since, I want to say, 2012 now. So, about eight years. So, since his first term. And, you know, he, I, I followed him pretty closely. I've written a lot about New York City politics and state politics. And he, just, just to give a primer, you know, he very much ha- has been a 
you know, fiscally conservative, socially liberal governor. That's probably yeah. the easiest way to describe him, though at times he has pivoted to the left, usually when it's convenient for him or if he's experiencing some type of pressure from left leading forces in New York state. So um, I, I won't, you know, I, I, have, I have political issues with Cuomo, but I'll, I'll focus mostly on, on coronavirus. And, and back in March, um, I started, you know, writing about COVID um, like, like everyone else as it was ravaging New York City. And one of my great frustrations at the time, and still a frustration, was how Andrew Cuomo would get constantly praised for his response to coronavirus, which is still the case. And I argued at the time, and I still argue, I also argue in the Substack, as you can see, which is called the Cuomo Files, and right. it started originally to hold Andrew Cuomo accountable. It's still doing that, but then I also pivot to other topics as well, yeah. like Bernie Sanders. So just to give a quick recap, why do I criticize Cuomo, who has been valorized in all sorts of media, you know, from the New York Times to um, you know, prestige national magazines, you know, you, you name a media outlet, Cuomo has gotten praise from it. Why has he been praised and why do I think he's failed? Well, we start with, with, with the fact that, you know, New York State lost a phenomenal amount of life. I think we, we still, even now with coronavirus killing a lot of people across the country, we, we don't really, I don't think, reckon enough with how many people died who did not have to die. 32,000 people statewide. It's a staggering, staggering number. New York City, well over 20,000. And it was pretty apparent by the beginning of March that coronavirus was spreading in New York City, New York State. If, you, if you'd read about it, if you'd followed um, you know, how, how, how the virus interacts, um, the trajectory of it. It was very clear this is going to be a major problem. And instead of addressing it, both Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo repeatedly downplayed the threat. You can go back and look at clips from early March interviews where, you know, Cuomo was talking about how he still wanted to shake people's hands. He was saying things like the fear is the, the greatest thing that you have to fear about this kind of like FDR, you know, right. um, so but not, not not disease. About, uh, disease. Not, yeah. yeah, let's not overreact. Right. And then he was very slow, actually, despite his reputation to shut down the city. And that's really what it comes down to in California, Gavin Newsom and London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco really coordinated together to do a relatively early shutdown. Even Bill de Blasio on March 17th was saying it's time to shut down New York City. We need a shelter in place order. Cuomo dismissed it wholesale, mostly because Bill de Blasio had suggested it. Right. Cuomo They're was so annoying. Their little rivalry. Yes. And, uh, and, and Cuomo also is late to um, order a statewide shutdown of schools. The, the states of Ohio and Michigan actually were quicker to do this than um, Andrew Cuomo. So he, he was late on a shutdown order. We didn't get the statewide shutdown order until March 22nd. By then, the virus had spread rapidly throughout the city and, and the state as well, and people were getting sick and dying. So he was slow on that front in his initial reaction to contain the spread. He was very bad at coordinating with New York City, coordinating hospitals, the public hospitals, the private hospitals. Some hospitals were horribly overrun with cases. Others were not. Um, 
you had you had an issue of hospital capacity in certain neighborhoods. Ironically, in part, that's because Andrew Cuomo has supported um, defunding hospitals, cutting Medicaid funding, especially to poor hospitals. Um, you know, you you had a, a situation where actually the, the city and state were quite disorganized, and and there was a lot of needless suffering and death. And we've done a good job of bending and flattening the curve. I do give Andrew Cuomo credit there, but people are still dead. And then you look at the nursing homes, which are also a worry catastrophe. At least um, at least 6,000 people are dead and uh, died in New York State nursing homes. I say at least because we do not know the true number. The way nursing home deaths are counted in New York is if you get sick and infected in a nursing home, but you die in a hospital, it is a hospital death and not a nursing home death. Oh, wow, wow. You can imagine but, someone, uh, someone gets sick in a nursing home, they are then transported logically to a hospital. And so in this calculus, those deaths don't even count. So you just 6,000 people who got sick and died in nursing homes literally die there you have many more people died in hospitals and, and that that count is very unclear there's been a very uh much publicized you know directive that cuomo really admitted was a failed policy and and um re repealed back in may which was nursing homes had to accept and readmit covid positive patients and this isn't the only reason that many people died in nursing homes, but it certainly is a contributing factor. Cuomo also gave nursing homes and hospitals legal immunity right. in the state budget, which is very important to keep in mind. I, I'm doing a piece on the nation for the nation right now in nursing homes. I'm speaking with families of those who suffered. It, it's very, very sad. And they cannot bring a COVID-related lawsuit against the nursing home for malpractice. They, they right. are forbidden by law and that's because his donors are are people who run these nursing homes yeah the nursing home industry is very po powerful in new york state so is the hospital um industry as well um you know cuomo um works very closely with the power brokers in in, in the healthcare sector he has for a long time and you need individual nursing homes too who are begging for ppe please give us we don't have enough and the state failed to give them enough ppe and that was another major issue and there were just also a, I go on and on about this logistical issues you know cuomo purchasing and and, and trying to get as many ventilators as he could while ignoring cries for ppe and ppe was relatively affordable and available um, compared to ventilators but he chose to focus on ventilators rather than those preventative measures so um you know while you can give the state credit for flattening the curve you can't ignore the staggering amount of death and and then finally the re the economic reaction to coronavirus in new york is also very concerning because andrew cuomo has proposed deep cuts to state aid um that he is currently basically following through on he he has not detailed them yet but City University of New York, the State University of New York, a lot of public institutions are cutting back rapidly, laying people off under the assumption that the state is not going to give them any money. Now, tax revenue has plummeted in New York State as it has elsewhere. And the question is, um, you know, what do you do, right? 
you can raise taxes on wealthy people. This has been done many times before. After 9-11, we raised money on on wealthy people and property owners, did it during the Great Recession after 2008. Cuomo right now is refusing to back any sort of tax on millionaires and billionaires, which is a big, big issue. And he's also refusing to borrow money. The Federal Reserve has um, virtually interest-free loans that they are offering to municipalities. Cuomo has been reluctant to raise taxes or borrow. So what do you do? If you're not gonna raise taxes, you're not gonna borrow, Donald Trump is not coming through the generous federal aid package, at least not yet, you cut. And so Cuomo has always been very driven by this austerity mindset. Right. If he hasn't always successfully implemented it on every level, it's always been kind of a grand aim of his. And for those who live in New York now, that is the deep concern. You're gonna see devastating cuts to public schools, to public transportation, to hospitals, to social services, to the very safety net that we all rely on. And um, it's deeply distressing, and I've written a fair amount a fair amount about it in my newsletter for the nation um, and, and elsewhere. So that's kind of the yeah. Over. I, I've had on Ava Farkas, who's the mm -hmm. executive director of um, Met Council on Housing. And she was talking about how Cuomo, you know, he he makes it seem like he has like his hands are tied, but he doesn't have, you know, just like that. He said, you know, he can't re expand the budget beyond like two percent or something. It's mm -hmm. this random number. Property, um, yeah, the property uh, tax. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, cap. right. You will not. Yes, he, he imposes a a cap on how much you can raise property taxes, and that's how most local governments fund everything outside of New York City, especially. So. Yeah, it ties right. the hands of public education in particular. It's, it's a big right. Issue. And he's a fiscal conservative. He's an austerity um, governor. But the other thing is, like, as anyone, most people know, that that's always been basically a myth. The social, I mean, you can performatively be socially, and I guess with with LGBTQ stuff, it's different. Well, yeah. Anyway, but he's been, he's been good on that. Yeah, I mean, but he's yeah, been on that for for nine right. years now. And <laughs> I am, you know, I'm black. I'm a Jew. I'm a gay. You remember that video that he I did? I remember that very well. That, that was really that moving. Was um, but uh, you know, you can only do um fiscal um conservatism and and austerity so much before you're actually implementing racist policies, just because of how. Yeah. Know, oh yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, housing is a great example. I'm sure Ava talked a lot about that. You know, um, New York for for for, de for decades now has been losing a lot, hundreds of thousands of rent stabilized apartments, and it was only in 2019 that a law was repealed that um, you couldn't take a, a you couldn't. Um, make a rent stabilized apartment a market rate apartment so just just i guess to back up for those who don't know um new york city most apartments are market rate like condos you know regular you know rentals they can charge whatever whatever they want whatever the market bears um but we do have which is kind of a remnant of our post-world war ii social safety net which has been steadily eroded this program of rent stabilized housing 
And a fair amount of people, I've lived in rent-stabilized housing, a fair amount of people do. Rent-stabilized housing doesn't mean that you still don't pay pretty high rent. What it means is you are the landlord is limited every year in how much they can raise your rent. And that is set by a rent guideline guidelines board. So usually it's a one or two percent a year. You have a right to renewal. You have all these little protections built in that the market rate renter does not get. And um in the 1990s, a law was passed um, in Albany and in the city council as well that um, created a way for landlords to raise rents to a certain level so they can then deregulate rent stabilized housing and, and make it market rate. Uh, the, the threshold was, you know, it changed over the years, 2000 something dollars, you would hit that rent, it would go market rate. Landlords had a variety of tricks they could pull doing capital improvements, harassing tenants to either get them to move. If, if they left the apartment, if it went vacant, you could take it market rate or you could raise the rent enough. So landlords had a lot of ways to make sure these rent stabilized apartments became expensive market rate apartments. And so um, this bad 1990s law was only repealed when Democrats took control of the state Senate, no thanks to Andrew Cuomo, um, in 2018, then took office in 2019 and repealed this. And so Cuomo had almost a decade as governor where he did nothing to protect the rent-stabilized apartment stock. He, he did nothing to strengthen rent laws in, in New York State. So if you are a tenant, a renter, a working-class person in New York City or New York State, you quite frankly should have a lot of problems with Andrew Cuomo. Um, if you're a wealthy person, maybe not. Or right. you know, maybe you're a wealthy person who cares about those who aren't as well off as you. But um, from from a housing standpoint, um, and and really from you know from from a really a standpoint of of the social safety net and the, and the public sector, Cuomo has been either um, a real roadblock to progress. Um, or someone who's not doing enough to further the cause. And it kind of depends on the year and his mood. And, and I guess he gets a lot of credit because I, I feel like Trump has, has lowered the bar so much that mm -hmm. because he talks about, you know, da experimenting with bleach to treat um, COVID, that, that Cuomo just looks incredibly calm, collected, rational, um, coherent, science-based. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and yeah. I, I look forward to the day Donald Trump is out of office for, for the most obvious reasons that he's a terrible president, but also because I think it will free the left yeah, from the Trump right. derangement syndrome, which is anything that is opposite of Trump is good, right? So yeah. I, I've been, totally, I, yeah. I experienced this t t yesterday and today on Twitter with Amazon. I, I was tweeting my, my hatred for Amazon and like yeah. actually calling for boycotting their products. Obviously, hard to do the, the web services. They're a massive monopoly. Totally understand if you cannot literally boycott everything Amazon has its tendrils in. Right. Um, but you can certainly uh, find ways to, to boycott at least yeah. part of it. So um, a lot of people on the left were, were defending Amazon to me and it's kind of striking. And, and, and I couldn't help but think um, if, if, if Donald Trump hadn't spent so much time attacking Jeff Bezos, um, oh, yeah. that, that liberals uh, wouldn't feel a little sympathy for him. You know, if Donald Trump was pro-Amazon, you would have the left running to the barricades against Amazon, you know, like, like they would, you know, like they have 
rightfully so with Black Lives Matter, you know, right. you probably see a big mass movement against Amazon, but but you don't in, in part, I think, because it's a yeah. popular service, but also there is this kind of idea of, you know, Trump is horrible, so therefore everything opposite is yeah. good, and that's not true. It's so, so stupid. It's so stupid because bad people yeah. will do the right thing for even if for wrong reasons. One of the things that that Jen has spoken about um, when I interviewed her was about how much the Dems like Pelosi um, and Debbie Wasserman Schultz, how much they gain from having Trump in office because they don't have to do anything mm-hmm. and they just get all the, their donors just, you know. Don't have they, to govern. They don't have to govern. They don't have to actually um, yeah. resist in any meaningful way. So with with that intro, let's bring on to the show, Jen Perelman. Hi, Jen. Hi. Hi. Thank you. How are you? Yeah. Hi. So, Jen, um, what do you do? You have anything you want to say about the the things that we were just talking about about the you know MIC resistance and and how that relates to your campaign? Yeah, I think that it perfectly relates to any campaign of any progressive that wants to come in that's not beholden to the party. And I think that's a huge part of it. You know, it isn't just beholden to corporations; it's beholden to the party and this party which no longer represents labor so we essentially have one party we have one corporate party so any democrat that doesn't go in line with corporate agenda is essentially ghosted in an outcast um and sort of treated as a pariah and that's just the way it is and i do think they like trump and i do think that this keeps everybody exactly where they are and they don't have to do anything so how how is your race going right now i just found out today interestingly that um if you were to type in jenperlman.com or jenperlmanforcongress.com they directly go to debbie don't say don't say yet let's do it right now Okay, you want to see what it is? Yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. All right, so I'm going to open up a new web page. Okay. And, and then you have to just type in jenperlman.com, okay. J E N P E R E L M A N. Dot com? Dot com. Okay, ready? Let's see what happens. Oh, hmm. you guys see that? Huh. Wow. Okay. And then it also happens for if you do jenperlman.com. Okay, it does it both. And I just I want to be clear that I'm not like naive about the fact that we're rookies. We didn't buy up every single domain name. I get it. They bought the domain names. That's really funny. But the fact that it goes to her congressional page, that's not a campaign page. That's her congressional page. It just seems very unethical to me. And I'm sure it's legal. I'm sure it's like just this side of legal, but it's just not. It's kind of pathetic, really. Yeah. I mean, and then, right. And this can't be like, could they say a hacker did it or something? Who would do that for her? Right. I mean, if she were a really popular legislator and people really loved her and she was like, maybe, maybe somebody would go out of their way to do it for her. But if you trace the company that bought the domain name, it goes to some front business in Panama. Oh, interesting. Well, she's huge in Panama. Um. But couldn't they also denounce? Wouldn't they say if they're responsible, they'd be like, sorry, this is not our doing. Well, we'll wait and see. I mean, we just the only reason we even found out about it. I mean, they they obviously bought the domain names back in September. Um, But I don't know when she linked it to her congressional page. I don't know how old it is. I don't. The only reason we found it is we were looking to purchase um, other domain names for possibly going forward. And we just and, and one of our people came across this. She did a poll, Katie. I know she did a poll a couple of weeks ago because a couple of my volunteers got polled and she was polling about her and me. 
Hmm. And this was, I want to say it was three weeks ago. And I'm thinking that she didn't get such stellar results or it would have been leaked and I would have heard something about uh, it. Yeah. If, if we were looking hmm. horrible, like if we were doing really poorly, somehow yeah. I just know that we would know that. And I know she did a poll and I haven't heard anything. Yeah. So obviously we can't afford to do that. So, right. you know, but we'll see. I mean, I, I get a lot of positive feedback. I get a lot of people that, you know, most of our phone banking volunteers report. Um, it generally sounds really good. And, and based on who we're calling or people that very district specific Democrats, we do call some non-parties because they have two weeks to change over to Democrats. So it's very strategic. And for the most part, we get very good for every negative. I love Debbie comment, which I get those. I could post something that has nothing to do with her and someone will come on and go, I love Debbie. And I'm like, all right, well, that's great. Right. I love Debbie. Um, but for every one of those, there's 10 comments that are the other side. So yeah. Yeah. Here's hoping. Yeah. Yeah. And Ross, you ran for office. I went to one of your yeah. events. Um, yes. what, was what, did the... you run? what did you run for? First state Senate in New York City. Um, it was actually it was a Democratic primary to take on a Republican. Um, I, I lost the primary. I was the insurgent outsider against the establishment-backed Democrat, and I got over 40% but did not win. Um, he actually ended up unseating the Republican, so that was interesting. Um, so that was two was years that? ago, state in New York City. Uh, Andrew Gennardis, who defeated Marty Goldman oh, for state. Okay, yeah. He's a very low-key state senator. You'll probably never hear from him again. No, I have for some reason, um, but yeah. Yeah. So so I, I ran myself. I, I know how difficult it is, how how fun but lonely. It's like a mix of the two. You know, you, you enjoy it tremendously, but it's a lot of work. And, and it's hard as the outsider. I went for many labor endorsements and not get them. Um, very frustrating. You know, got, got some endorsements, but definitely um, – you know, it, it, it was it was very great experience, um, uh, very time consuming uh, and, and and you learn a lot. I mean, I definitely learned a lot from the race in, in terms of things. If I ever did it again, how I would do it differently, um, you know, the importance of, of fundraising, of kind of building your operation early and, and just first time candidates. You know, there, there's so much you don't realize that you don't know. And I covered politics for a long time and still do. And there's still a lot I did not know until I got in there and did it. So um, it's know. hard. I, I think that it's interesting because I was thinking about it today and it's not even that it's just a full-time job. This is my life. Like no. it's our life. Like there, there, this is, it's constant. I I'm at three o'clock and I was at a photo shoot last night. I didn't get home until about two in the morning and you know, no. I hadn't even had dinner yet. So no. it's like, it's your life to do this. Yeah. It yes. couldn't be. No, it is. It is. It's a I mean, you know, I support publicly yeah. financed elections in a three-month election cycle, and I think that this is the biggest waste of resources yeah. and money ever. Yeah. Um, but it's un—it's necessary. Well, this was great, guys. Thank you so much. And it was a great combination. And again, if you're yeah. just tuning in, um, make sure you check out um, Ross on Twitter. It's just at Ross Barkin. You can check me out. Um, my Check out my Substack, which I started recently. It's just rossbarkin.substack.com. It's called The Cuomo Files. And you can read me in The Guardian and The Nation and other publications. And you, Jen? We are gen2020.com. We need volunteers for phone banking. And we are at genfl23 on Facebook, or I'm sorry, on Twitter and Instagram. Facebook and is gen2020. Facebook what? Gen2020 on Facebook. Okay. And um, what happens now with your website? With my website? 
Yeah, I mean, what happens if people enter in? Oh, no, Gen2020 is my website. That is my website. Gen2020.com is my website. Right, but people- They they just bought the Jen Perlman, which is like an old underhanded campaign tag. They do that like in in New York, they do that a lot. They like in like random city council races, they'll just buy- Right, and And again, it's not that he bought them up. It is an amateur- Amateur yeah. move by, by someone who's in Congress. That's yeah. the thing is that she used it to direct to her city, count, city council move. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, that's that's Florida for you. Right? DNC chair move. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, she was kind of sloppy, right? Isn't that part of the point? She also ended up losing them over a thousand seats or something like right. that during right. her tenure. Right. And whatever she did financially, Ross, you might know more than me, but it ended up where they were basically dependent on the Clinton Foundation for funding because she ran the DNC into the ground. Yeah. The DNC and this is who wants to be chair of appropriations. Trump did that to Jeb. Yeah. Don't name, well, name. But that is so... Trumpian. Yeah, I mean, that's right. perfect. He wasn't a sitting congressperson that had it directed to his congressional yeah. page. I mean, but let's be honest, as president, he would totally do that. But it's a Trump oh, yes. thing. It's not yeah. a Wasserman Schultz thing. Like, they're supposed to be the moral party and everything oh. else. Wow. Yeah. Thanks again so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show. Thanks so much to Ross Barkin, Jen Perlman, and Melba Pearson. Don't forget to check out MelbaForMiami.com to find out more about Melba. And you'll definitely want to become Patreon supporters because I'll be releasing my extended interview with Ross Barkin and Jen Perlman where we talk about how and why Bernie lost and also how progressives can use the media even when the media is hostile to them. Also, you'll be able to hear a debate between electronic intifadas Ali Abunima and historian Matt Karp about the free speech-ish, cancel culture-ish letter published in Harper's. And Matt is a signatory. So again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show. The Katie Halper Show's theme song is by the band Cordova.